Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. In the last episode we considered the prescription of the death penalty for those who transgress certain taboos in Leviticus chapter 20. We noted that this development stems from a desire to protect the community's purity and holiness from certain malefactors who refuse to conform to purity laws. While we might find these measures confronting, it's helpful to consider how this same mechanism plays out in our handling of the current COVID-19 pandemic. Those considered or suspected to be potentially infectious are placed in quarantine to reduce the threat to the rest of the community. Refusal to comply with this quarantine is often met with outrage and calls for harsh penalties and punishment because just like these ancient peoples, us moderns need someone to blame for our current crisis. Some blame those who contravene the communally sanctioned means of managing the crisis, including quarantine, social distancing and wearing masks. By flaunting these communal norms, the offenders are perceived as endangering the entire community, much like the offenders listed in Leviticus 20. In response, these people are condemned by their community, who quarantine, wear masks and socially distance to ensure everybody's continuing well-being. Fines, imprisonment and other penalties are currently being issued to offenders as a means of venting the community's anger and encouraging potential malefactors to adhere to the communal norms. The same scapegoat mechanism lies behind the punishment of those who are seen as endangering the community through their refusal to adhere to COVID safe protocols. So next time you're frustrated or angered by that person who stubbornly flaunts a government-mandated COVID-19 protocol, remember that's exactly how the ancient Israelites felt about those who disobeyed purity laws, such as those outlined in Leviticus chapters 11 through to 20. Let's pick up our study now in Leviticus chapter 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make ball patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. They shall offer the Lord's offerings the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. 
He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute. These he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Because the priests work in close proximity to the primitive sacred, they must follow stricter protocols than the rest of their community. If we think of the Israelite camp as a dartboard, the bullseye represents the tabernacle. The Lord's presence in the tabernacle requires careful management to avoid an outburst of divine violence. For this reason, only the high priest is permitted to enter the Lord's dwelling place inside the holiest of holies of the tabernacle once a year on the Day of Atonement. But of course, this responsibility comes with all these extra purity regulations, such as the high priest cannot ever come in contact with a dead body. He can't even defile himself with his parents' corpse. Moving outward beyond the curtain of the holiest place, the priests and the Levites work to maintain the tabernacle furnishings. No lay people are permitted to enter the tabernacle because it is considered holy. The priest's vocation in the tabernacle mean they must adhere to stricter protocols than the rest of their community. They are not allowed to carry out standard mourning rites and they must only defile themselves for a dead close relative. What we're seeing here is a delicate dance as the biological processes of death threaten to defile the Lord's sanctuary. In an ideal world, no priests would ever defile themselves by coming in contact with a dead body, but that's just not practical. As a workable compromise, the priesthood are allowed to attend to their closest dead relatives because who else is going to do it? The priests must attend to the dead corpses of their closest relatives because no lay people are permitted inside the sanctuary to perform that function. The next ring of our dartboard represents the temple precinct into which lay people were permitted to offer their sacrifices on the altar. Those considered impure were not permitted entry and strict protocols were still required to protect the Lord's dwelling place from defilement. Outside the tabernacle complex, some impurities were tolerated, while others saw people banished outside their community, which would represent the very outer ring of the dartboard. As we move towards the center of the dartboard, we approach the Lord's presence, and for this reason, purity protocols become increasingly strict. Only specialized, highly trained personnel, such as priests and Levites, are permitted in the inner rings of the dartboard, where the risk of contaminating the holy space is highest. Scholars call this arrangement of concentric rings of holiness around the tabernacle graded holiness. This concept helps explain why the priests were subject to stricter purity laws than the rest of their community. 
Two main ideas presented in this passage concern who priests are permitted to marry and how a priest must respond to the death of a relative. In ancient Israelite purity culture, both sex and death were potentially defiling. While lay people were permitted to marry divorced women, the priesthood are not on account of their proximity to the primitive sacred. To consider this idea from a mimetic perspective, let's begin by reviewing the effect of adultery in the community. Engaging in sexual relations with another man's wife can generate a powerful mimetic rivalry between the wife's husband and her lover, as these two men struggle against one another over the common desired object, the woman. Imitating his rival's desire for his wife, the husband becomes jealous not just for his wife, but also for his own honour and masculinity, which his rival's sexual advances have threatened. In contrast, marrying a divorced woman does not generate a powerful rivalry because her ex-husband presumably no longer desires her and her sexuality is no longer considered the property of her ex-husband. For this reason, unlike the case of adultery, marrying a divorced woman poses no threat to the ex-husband's masculinity and honour and therefore does not generate as powerful a rivalry between the woman's former and her current husband. These observations help explain why lay people are permitted to marry divorced women, but adultery is considered strictly taboo. Why then is the priest not permitted to marry a divorced woman? I believe the concept of graded holiness helps answer this question. Although marrying a divorced woman may not generate a powerful rivalry between two male suitors, it does seem to generate some low-grade sort of impurity, at least according to our passage. The passage we're looking at is very concerned to protect the tabernacle from defilement. For this reason, the priest is forbidden from marrying a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled or a divorced woman. And the whole idea is that we're trying to protect the sanctuary. We're trying to protect the holiest of holies from defilement. We are also told that the daughter of a priest who engages in sexual immorality can profane her father. So in other words, her actions generate an impurity which profanes her father's holiness. So the passage is concerned about how this divorced woman will somehow defile the Lord's sanctuary. Our passage doesn't really tell us why the divorcee is considered impure. Perhaps the holiness school extends this idea of prostitutes being impure, priest daughters who are involved in sexual immorality being impure, this idea that they're not a one-man woman. Maybe the holiness school extends that to the divorcee. We don't really know. But the holiness school does have a tendency to take things to the next level when it comes to purity, as we'll see when we get to numbers. The other prohibition in our passage concerns mourning rites for priests, including letting one's hair hang loose and tearing one's clothes. 
You may recall that in Leviticus chapter 13, the leper is commanded to perform these same mourning rites outside the camp. Through these rites, the leper performs a pantomime of their own death. Notice what's happening here. The leper is performing a pantomime of their own death outside the camp, the very outer ring of our dartboard, which represents the realm of death and impurity. While it may be considered appropriate for the leper to tear their clothes and let their hair hang loose outside the camp, it's very inappropriate for that to happen within the tabernacle. From a mimetic perspective, mourning is considered taboo within the tabernacle because it houses the primitive sacred. Recall that the primitive sacred spawns from the original anathema, the first scapegoat, who was reviled and executed by their own community. When the community experienced the peace and order following the scapegoat's execution, they attribute these blessings to the scapegoat themselves, who was a curse in life, but has now become beneficent in death. The community then begin to worship their deceased scapegoat as a god, assuming that this deity is now reaching beyond death to bless them in life. And this is how the primitive sacred is born. Recognizing that the primitive sacred is really just the original scapegoat helps explain why this person cannot be mourned. As the ultimate anathema, the primitive sacred is despised by their community who celebrate its death. For the same reason, the priesthood cannot be mourned. As the scapegoat dwelling in the midst of the sacred space, the priesthood incarnate the anathema of the primitive sacred, whose death must be celebrated rather than mourned. This observation helps explain why priests must not mourn the death of their relatives or defile themselves with their dead bodies. Although some practical concessions are made for very close relatives, the high priest, the ultimate scapegoat, is not permitted to mourn or become defiled by death at all. Let's read on now from verse 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a blind or a lame one, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the most holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them." So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. People with physical deformities or injuries cannot approach the Lord's presence for fear of profaning the sacred space. Despite this limitation, priests with physical injuries or deformities participated in other priestly activities, including eating the consecrated food. 
Again, the primary concern here appears to be placing physical distance between potential defilement and the Lord's presence. According to the legislator, priests with physical deformities or injuries could profane the Lord's sanctuary if they approached his presence. From a mimetic perspective, physical deformities or injuries often cern as what Gerard calls the sign of the victim, differentiating the victim from the rest of the mob in the middle of a mimetic crisis. In the undifferentiation of the mimetic crisis, this sign of a victim, a limp, a deformed hand, a deformed foot, whatever it is, is something which sets the scapegoat apart and signals to the mob who they should select as their scapegoat. However, in the case of the priest with a physical deformity or injury, he is set apart from the rest of the priesthood who are considered holy to the Lord. This differentiation renders the injured or deformed priest common, like the rest of the lay people outside the tabernacle precinct. Just as lay people are not permitted to approach the Lord's presence, so the injured or deformed priest is forbidden from entering the holier parts in the tabernacle for fear that their deformity or injury will set them apart from the priesthood and defile the tabernacle, incurring divine violence. The problem is not so much the injury or deformity itself, but rather that this condition serves as a mark of differentiation from the rest of the priesthood. Reading on now from chapter 22, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they may abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or a hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. 
And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord. And so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. This section closes with various commands concerning the consumption of holy offerings, which constituted part of the priest's wages. For this reason, any layperson who eats of us must pay compensation, much like a thief must pay reparation for whatever they steal. The priest's household could eat of the holy things, but only when considered ritually pure. The food must be guarded from all impurity because it is still considered holy. Failure to do so may generate divine violence. So we see here again this interplay between the practical side of the priest's family needs to eat and the need to keep the Lord's offerings holy. The compromise seems to be that yes, the priest's family can eat, their household, their slaves, everyone is permitted to eat of the holy offerings so long as they are not considered ritually impure. In this way, the priest's family still get fed without the Lord's offerings becoming defiled. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.